Artistic Whispers Productions presents Antithesis Book One Predestination and Other Games of Chance A podcast novel written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer Author contact information at www.jdsawyer.net Featuring the vocal talents of George Clinsos Aaron K. Balabinian Stephanie Sawyer Stephen H. Wilson Kitty Nikian. With original music by Danny Shade. This story contains harsh language, sexual situations, and graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. And now. Episode 23. I'm Steve Rickyberg from GeekCred over at geekcred.net. You're listening to Predestination, and this is the story so far. Percy Scott's odyssey has been dark and long. From his time in Ecuador to his vacation on Sidon, from following orders even though it meant betraying his wife, to seducing a Mortonite dock worker so that he could steal his identity, his assignment has taken him from one end of human civilization to the other. He helped his father-in-law, Bill Shelley, engineer a crisis to undercut the Lunar Revolutionary Movement, and he planted evidence on Joss Kyle to frame him up and force the resistance to kill him. Every turn of the plan has worked perfectly. The good soldier has done his job and now he gets to go home. He has only one more stop to make on the road back to Earth. On Nineveh, Joss Kyle has walked into a trap. After what she was certain was her last night with him, Cassie Orenthal led him straight to Doug Reeves, who chose to meet and apprehend him in his own bar, Phalanx. Because Cassie has been careful where she stands, he hasn't yet guessed who else is at the table. Oh, we know each other. The impossibly tall, dark man straightened up and Cassie shifted to the side just enough that Joss could see him. It wasn't necessary. He'd know that voice if it called him back from the grave. You couldn't work in Washington in the 20s and not know that voice. We met seven years ago at the State of the Union. His fingers found his sig before Joss fully registered who he was looking at. Douglas Reeves, member of the Lunar Board of Directors, Bill Shelley's golden boy on Luna. Shelley, who called in the hit on Joss in the first place. Cassie wouldn't meet his eyes, probably too busy mentally counting her silver. I knew it! It had always been a matter of time. Beauty was treachery. Their illusory solidarity and shards around them, he felt his life grind again between the teeth of the gears that ran the world. In his pocket, Joss's finger pulled the hammer back on his sig ever so slowly. The hammer clicked quietly as it locked into place, and he pulled his right hand out of his pocket as if to offer it to Reeves. The moment the butt cleared the cuff of his coat pocket, Cassie stepped back out of the line of fire. Joss reflexively checked the motion before finishing his draw and nearly froze. A too familiar predator stared straight through him from behind dark eyes and black curly hair, and next to her the balding, sharp, resentful features of a man too long in exile. Joss kept his gun trained on Reeves, hedging that the Hartmans wouldn't sacrifice a VIP just to get to him. Drop it, Briggs! Alyssa's voice was just as sharp as he remembered. Joss, it's not! He kept his eye on Reeves, but Alyssa absorbed all his attention. The fuck 
are you doing here? Joss turned his left hand just enough so that she could see the throwing star palmed in it. Don't get- Cassie fell silent before anything further tumbled out of her mouth. He kept his eyes fixed on Alyssa. Her voice hissed through her teeth like cold blood dropping into a frying pan. Drop it now, Briggs, or I swear to God I'll shoot. Don't flatter yourself, Alyssa. You can't squeeze before this man drops. Like a branching tree of dominoes, all the triggers in the room stood poised to fall. Nobody moved. For the space of three heartbeats, no one breathed. Joss didn't dare blink for fear of setting off Alyssa's hair trigger. He held his breath. He waited. Reeves wavered, looking straight up the barrel of Joss's gun. Cassie slowly, almost imperceptibly, started her hand creeping towards her gun belt. If she got to it, someone was going to die. He flicked his gaze over to Jim. His gun was still on Joss, but his eyes were on Cassie. Joss's eyes jumped back to Alyssa. He waited. Any second now... When it happened, he'd have a split second to get clear. You have to go on just one little blink. If he could get behind Cassie, then maybe you can do it. If he was off by so much as a millisecond, he was dead. Assuming Jim didn't get him. Assuming Cassie didn't draw on him. You know you want to. A little breeze caught the curl dangling into Alyssa's face. She blinked. Joss didn't move. Not yet. If he moved now, he'd be bleeding on his own deck plates. He needed a better option. There would be another blink. But as he passed along to his second breath, no other option materialized. The only way out of the bar was on a gurney. Joss, trust me. They're not going to kill- Your credibility is unbankable right now, Cass. The throwing star tickled his fingers. It wanted to fly. Joss clamped his palm around it, wincing as the bladed point sliced into the flesh of his fingers. Too many variables. He flitted his eyes to the picture frame and rested his gaze there. A good enough reflection that he could see everyone. Reuben. Reeves talked as if it were the most natural thing in the world to be sitting in a bar on a space station circling the sun halfway between Earth and Mars, with guns pointed by everyone but him, and facing down a supremely good chance that in 35 seconds he'd be one amid a pile of bodies. Put it down. Joss felt the cold necessity of the hunted creeping back over him. The man at the other end of his gun wasn't a person anymore. He was an obstacle, a thing to be gotten rid of. Joss crawled inside that realization and let it grow around him. It would keep him safe. They were all just cards falling as they must. He would not fold first. Put it down and ruin this beautiful balance? I think not. You have a problem, Douglas. Looks that way, doesn't it? Reeves inclined his head ever so slightly. Joss saw Cassie's reflection move in the mirror, but didn't have time to react before her thermal was out of its holster and pressed up against his right wrist. Checkmate. If he fired first, he was dead. That hadn't changed. But now if they fired first, he wouldn't take anyone with him. Cassie would burn his wrist out and he wouldn't be able to drop Reeves before his hand hit the floor. He fought his panic down into his gut. He was caught. For now. He wouldn't stay that way. They'd slip up somehow. Very slowly, Joss lowered his pistol and pocketed it. 
He withdrew his left hand from his pocket, leaving the throwing star behind and streaking blood across the front of his trench. He made a point of showing it to Cassie. You did this. If he thought it loud enough, she might just get a fucking clue. Joss splayed his fingers wide and held his hands in front of him, showing Reeves he was unarmed. Reeves nodded. Hand your weapons to Ms. Orenthal and have a seat. Reeves had only seen the gun and the bloody hand. If the universe was smiling today, they might be the only weapons he knew about. Only Cassie had ever gotten close enough to learn the secrets of his coat, and there was a chance, about a maggot's whisker wide, that she'd kept her trap shut. Joss gingerly reached into his right pocket and seized the butt between his thumb and forefinger. He lifted it slowly, making sure that Alyssa could see every bit of the move. Her face was twisted down below the surface. Fury? Hatred? Whatever it was, he didn't want to give her the excuse to indulge it. Reeves took the proffered weapon. Joss reached his bloodied hand down into his left pocket and retrieved the star, dropping it into Cassie's open hand, resisting the temptation to drop it point down and then smear her hands with his blood. Is that it, Reeves? Are we done? Sit down. It wasn't a request. Facing down three barrels, he had little choice but to comply for the moment. Joss pulled a chair from the nearby table and sat in it then took the fedora off his thinning head and set it in front of him. It might come in handy. Alyssa and Jim relaxed, lowering their weapons a little, but not holstering them. They moved as a unit, but they sat uneasily next to one another, as if they were working together under duress. Interesting. What are you doing here? Joss saw no point in dancing. And why the riffraff? Covertly, Joss reached a hand under the table and tapped a message in Morse. Mondu would hear it in the back and make the necessary arrangements. Hostels in bar, situation under control. Keep ears peeled. Do not interfere. Send drinks in ten minutes. Phalanx's ubiquitous surveillance meant he could afford to sit properly for the game. Mondu would keep watch. I've come to see you, Mr. Briggs. Reeves leaned forward on his bench. Not a gesture of intimidation, Joss decided, merely attempting to get comfortable. I have a problem. I thought you could help me. The universe is full of tragedy, Douglas. Everyone has problems, and my calendar's booked out to April with hard luck cases. You can make the time. I'll make it easy for you. I need information. Reeves waited for a response. Joss didn't give him the satisfaction of asking the obvious question. After a moment, Reeves relented. Very well. Reeves reached to his inside coat pocket and retrieved a PPD. I want to know how long you've been selling state secrets to the Persians. Once upon a time, a young man fell in love. Barely 23, he spent his time walking the world, learning its people. He had enough money to travel under an assumed name, and he was smart enough to keep that money at arm's length except when he really needed it. The remnants of old China, the parts that weren't still smoldering after the last of the new caliphate nuked Beijing, enchanted him. Not even the final spite of Arabia's dying religion could ruin the majesty of the oldest civilization on planet Earth. But it was in Mesopotamia where he fell. 
The Zoroastrian temple stood like a proud prophet at the edge of the city, the banks of the Euphrates lapping at its feet. Inside, the sacred fire burned and the penitents prayed before the priest ceremonially lit the candle from the altar, mounted his podium, and spoke. The young man had never heard the kinds of words that echoed through the high hall, words full of life and wonder, ideas that made sense of all the horror and ruined beauty he'd seen in China and in Japan. When the service was over and thanks had been said to Ahura Mazda, he walked outside and sat on the riverbank. Dates from the palm above him lay scattered on the ground, and the cool breeze blowing to him off the water gave the moment an air of magic. He picked up a date and brushed off the dust. Dark, earthy, and fleshy, he popped it into his mouth and wrapped his tongue around the most perfect moment of pleasure he would ever know. These days, he didn't dare wear his kushti in public, or even in private. It was something that his wife wouldn't have understood, even if she noticed. When Persia couldn't gain its own foothold in space and radicalized, they didn't have trouble finding him, even though as a young man he'd been careful not to let anybody know who he was. At first, all they'd wanted were occasional tidbits of information, little things that wouldn't compromise anyone. Sure, perhaps it would finish a puzzle they were already assembling, but the kind of trivia they were after were things they could find if they dug around long enough on the net. Over the years, the little favors got a little more frequent. The information he passed on got a little more sensitive. But in the end, it wasn't anything the spy catchers could do him for if they found him out. He was always careful. He always found ways around giving them anything that would really hurt the country, and ways of keeping his fingerprints off anything damaging. The cedar paneling in Bill Shelley's private office didn't soothe him. He would have given up everything he had accomplished to go back and take it back, to refrain from taking the Nevjot, to just worship Mazda in his heart, to keep them from using his faith against him. It could have saved Marion. It could have saved Reeves and Percy. But it was too late for that. Backed into a corner, he had to stall for time. Find a reason to placate his controllers while he engineered a pretext for getting the Air Force into lunar orbit. Persia wanted a presence on Luna, and they wanted to make sure that the lunar government didn't have the power to refuse them. What they didn't bank on was that the president as facile as his administration was, had a jingoist streak in him just wide enough to make sure they never set foot. All Bill had to do was whisper in the right ears, make sure it came off, and cover his tracks. After the next election season, he'd move his office down onto Pennsylvania at the far end of the mall. Then, then he could make it right. The honorable senator from Massachusetts picked up a photograph of the only son he'd ever known. It shouldn't have turned out this way. It should have gone down differently. Percy should have been allowed to keep Marion company into old age. But he was too useful, too trustworthy for that. 
Bill set the frame down on the bookshelf again, and then, after a moment's thought, he slammed it face down on the dark red wood. They didn't know what they were getting into when they stepped onto his dance floor. That mistake was going to cost them. The Persian Empire would pay for what they'd done to him. And then... History would forget them. The sound of breath echoed harshly in the helmet of his pressure suit as Percy trudged up the last mountain before the gorge. If he bothered to turn around, he might have seen the majesty of Luna City sprawled out before him across the crater floor. He didn't bother. He was sick to the teeth of gravity that couldn't get it up enough to pull him down properly, of looking up and seeing endless blackness, of life in tunnels and other creatively shaped cages. Last time he came here, he'd taken great care to erase his footprints in the basin. Once he was climbing the cliff face behind the airlock door, though, the outcroppings and boulders became a maze far too confusing even for him. It wasn't like tracking someone through the jungle of Peru or the mountains of Ecuador. There were no plants to remember, or dung heaps to disturb, or colored moss to mark the way. This was the moon, where everything existed in monochrome. A necessary evil... Last time he came here, he needed to leave his footprints in the slope's shallow dust undisturbed. The chances of anyone finding his trail were next to nothing, but somewhere in the back of his mind, that thin chance that someone would find the body and, through a series of bureaucratic machinations, blow his cover, had gnawed at him. A wan and sickly rat at the stiff fibers of his stability. He found them exactly where he left them. Normal erosion on the moon meant that 4,000 years from now, children in pea suits would still be able to follow his trail up through the rocks. They might even make a game of finding out where he'd gone and wonder why he dragged something behind him up such a treacherous slope. Picking his way between the boulders, he carefully followed his footprints and the intermittent drag marks from where they began in the dust. Wouldn't be long now. This was the last stop on his way home. Once he was back on home soil, the atmosphere closed tightly above him like God's protective blanket. Then he could relax. He could find Marion. He could find a way to make it right with her. Everything would be okay. The crown of the ridge opened up into another smaller crater. Nothing lay beyond it for thousands of kilometers, and it wasn't flat and hospitable, so it wouldn't draw tourists. It was a wide, shallow bowl of rubble and spikes. No air, no life, nothing out of place. Well, almost nothing. Just over the top, tucked in a crevice between a pair of boulders, Percy found the CF cloth and mylar bag. He dragged it from its hiding place and unclipped the carabiner hanging from an eyelet near the shoulder strap. A smaller pouch tethered to it with a long cord snaked its way out of the hidey hole. The luggage was just that. Luggage. A package to be delivered and forgotten. The pouch was what he was truly relieved to see again. Percy Scott, or at least everything that the world recognized as Percy Scott, lay sequestered safely within. 
the larger bag's climate control was still functioning. Through the suit's gloves, he quickly opened each satchel in turn, checking that their contents were as he left them. He didn't any longer have to worry about staving off ice crystals for the cargo in the large bag. In an hour, it would be plenty well exposed to the elements, or lack thereof. And by the time they started picking up the pieces, no coroner would know the difference. Excellent. Percy clipped the pouch to his pea suit, hefted the load to his back, and trudged back to the ridge. The extra weight, nearly twice his own, plus the burden of his breather and suit meant that he was carrying only a little more than his normal weight. The going was easy. As he crested the hill and looked down at the valley below, he wished that he could have done without the helmet so he could properly spit on the abomination laid out before him. If ever he'd entertained fantasies about space travel, about man's grand destiny, or any of the other bullshit that expansionist lunatics spouted on Capitol Hill, he knew better now. Babel fell for a reason. Luna would do the same, and good riddance to them. The tunnels beneath him crawled with degenerates, freeloaders, and thieves of the worst kind, and more social rejects than he'd ever seen. They lived that way, and they liked it. He'd played the doxy for that crowd of subterranean beetles for the last time. Unslinging the large pack from his shoulder, he wound up as best he could and flung it out and down, watching it fall in slow motion until it found a large outcropping and landed with what Percy hoped was a satisfying, bone-shattering splat. Wasting no time, he hopped between the boulders until he was halfway down the cliff. He stopped on the outcropping, picked up the bag, its load now satisfyingly fragmented, and threw it again. This time, it made it uneventfully to the crater floor. Percy followed, jumping between rock tops like a child dancing across a low-tide reef. As arduous as the trek up the slope had been, the descent was light and easy, almost playful. He relished the last few minutes of his final task, disposing of the last of the evidence, knowing that by this time tomorrow he'd be on a shuttle bound for home. When his feet touched the looser dust on the crater floor, he dashed the few feet to retrieve his burden and then ran towards the airlock. He didn't bother with covering his tracks. He didn't care any longer whether anyone knew someone had been up there. They wouldn't be able to tell when, and there was no treasure at the end of the trail to connect back to him or anything he'd done. The airlock was quiet. It wasn't really for public use. It didn't open up onto anything anyone might want to explore. No shuttle services stopped by. It was only here for emergency access, but there wasn't a law against taking a walk outside. The light was green. He could open the hatch without causing a breach. After peeking through the little window in the outer air door to make sure it was clear, Percy cranked it open and shoved the bag inside. Once it was clear of him, he stepped back out of the air door and secured it behind him. The oxygen automatically filled the chamber as the pressure cycled, and the fabric pushed in against the moderate vacuum, revealing the rough form of a body. Scott Walters, the real Scott Walters, had spent the last several weeks sealed in that flimsy coffin, temperature controlled at 0.5 Celsius to keep either his meat from rotting or his cells from freezing. 
Before he'd packed him inside, Percy had done some creative taxidermy with a kitchen knife, a needle and thread, and a bag filled with two kilograms of C4. The detonator was in the pouch. Percy turned his back on the door and made for the spaceport, two clicks distant, straight in front of him. Not a bad run for a Sunday afternoon. The ground was flat and more or less even. His long, soaring strides easily carried him above the debris and kept him from stumbling. His pressure suit handily wicked away the excess heat his body pumped out as the exhilaration of freedom filled him. When he reached the edge of the tarmac, he stopped and took stock. A tower near Terminal A housed a nice little Greek restaurant with a view of Earth directly overhead. Percy couldn't see it in the pressure suit without lying down, and he was done lying down. Not anymore. Not for Bill. Not for Mortonites. Not for anybody. He looked back over his trail and set off again at a run, this time over the tarmac where he'd leave no tracks. He needed to make good time so that if anyone happened upon the body before he finished it off, there would be no way to trace him. Another 300 meters across the landing pad and he ducked inside an airlock. The air hissed in all around him and he felt the fabric of his suit shift against his skin. The pressure light changed from red to green and he decoupled his helmet from the collar. He was in and safe. He carefully extracted a small packet from the pouch, opened it, and shook out the microfiber shift inside. It wasn't what any American would consider decent clothing, but in this loony bin it passed for casual social attire. He used it to wipe the fingerprints off his suit, then threw the shift over himself, grateful that it came down far enough to cover his thighs. It looked like a lightweight poncho, covered with god-awful colors and patterns. But it would do. The pressure suit he would leave. Someone would find it, clean it, and sell it after it went unclaimed for too long. Once dressed properly to go out, he grabbed the pouch and walked casually out of the airlock to join the crowds going about their business. Another 30 meters along, he found a window that looked back the way he'd come. It was his last moment of triumph, and the last check he'd have to do on his own work to make sure it was really done. His fingers easily found the detonator in the pouch. The buttons were laid out in the same pattern he'd always used, so there was no need to pull it out and draw attention to himself. He flipped the arming switch, mentally counted to ten, and pushed the firing button. Away across the crater, a small light flashed, and debris flew up and out from the base of the slope. Scott Walters, everything but his fingertips, was no more. Thousands of little icy bits of him were falling in a wide radius around that airlock right now. The bag he'd served his time in would have vaporized in the detonation, and what didn't would blend in with the materials in the airlock that also scattered across the valley floor. The man from Atlanta pulled the final tool from his pouch. A little acid gel to erase Walter's fingerprints. He would have to get by on iris scans next time he wanted to do his banking, but he could put up with that. As bad as the whole business had been, it was worth the trouble. Bill said so, and Bill had never given Percy any reason to doubt him. Well, no reason that stuck once all the facts were in. He dabbed the gel on his fingers, grateful once again for the pain. This 
was his last rite of purification, the last bit of penance for cleansing before he was himself again and free to go home. Percy Scott, citizen of Earth, struck out in search of the Greek restaurant in Terminal A. He didn't notice anyone watching him. He wouldn't have known the face if he'd seen it anyway, except perhaps as a half-remembered visage in a picture from Scott Walter's bathroom wall. But the face knew him. Percy's photograph had showed up in his dispatch from the desk of the right hand. The eyes of Thurston Appleby Shaw watched from behind a column, and it was all they could do to push the tears of rage away. You've been listening to episode 23 of Antithesis, book one, Predestination, and other games of chance. Written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer. Original music by Danny Shade, used with permission. This episode starred George Clensauce as Douglas Reeves, Aaron Balabanian as Allie, Stephanie Sawyer as Cassie Orenthal, Stephen H. Wilson as Percy Scott, and Kitty Nakian as the Spaceport Announcer. Some sounds courtesy the Free Sound Project at www.freesound.org. Other sounds copyright 2008, Kitty McKeon and Artistic Whispers Productions. This audiobook was recorded, edited, and mixed at Artistic Whispers Productions in Castro Valley, California. The book is copyright 1997 and 2008, J. Daniel Sawyer, and the recording is copyright 2009, Artistic Whispers Productions. This recording is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, and all other rights are reserved to the author. Attention, everyone. I am Nina Kimberly the Merciless, daughter of the feared barbarian conqueror Marcus the Merciless. My life story, as written by Christiana Ellis, is a comic fantasy novel coming to print on May 15, 2009 from Dragon Moon Press. To celebrate, Christiana is producing a brand new version of the podcast audiobook. Well, I'm here to do my part as well, and in order to help promote both the podcast and the print release, I am hereby seizing control of the internet and all who use it. Now, I understand that some of you may find this a controversial action, but the truth of the matter is that I don't care. Bloggers, podcasters, I demand that you surrender all your listeners and readers to me. If you are willing to declare your allegiance and loyalty, then you may be allowed to remain in administrative control over your individual domains. Resistors, however, will be dealt with in a fashion that they may find physically unpleasant, psychologically disturbing, and in all likelihood, really embarrassing. To reiterate, play this promo. Listen to the podcast at ninakimberly.com or christianaellis.com. Declare your loyalty to me and the mighty Ook Horde, and you may be spared. Defy me, and be prepared to face the consequences. That's Nina Kimberly the Merciless by Christiana Ellis, and don't you forget it. So, Volish knows who Percy is. 
and Zyler has tipped him off about what Percy did. Oh my. And now, we also know what Bill Shelley is up to, and it doesn't bode very well. There are only four episodes left to go, and still a few surprises left. Buried Alive in the Blues is proceeding apace for Erotica a la carte. Look for it there on April 15th. Also look for a new dealing in this weekend, as well as a special interview with composer Danny Shade. I know these last few episodes are dropping more like every 10 to 12 days than every 7. I'm trying to keep ahead of them, but there's a lot of new music and production involved, and I'm also trying to keep ahead of my other projects, and you can probably tell from my voice that I've also been a little sick. Again, this has been a bad year for colds. Just my luck, right when I start podcasting fiction, right? But, uh, yeah, thank you very much for being patient, and I hope I'm rewarding it well. I went on Geek Cred this week to talk to Scott Rickerberg about predestination, podcasting, and plans for the future. We had an entertaining time, and I managed to make a bit of a fool of myself, so if you want to giggle at my expense, it's definitely worth a listen. Scott brought us the story so far this week, and you can find his show at www.geekcred.net. Those of you in the Bay Area, I'll be at Baycon this Memorial Day weekend. If you're planning to go, drop me a line. We can set up a time for us all to meet in the bar and hang out for a while. I'm also going to set up another pub crawl here before too long, something to commemorate the wrap-up, I think. I'll have more time to schedule it in a couple weeks here, and I'll definitely keep you posted. A couple of you wrote in asking about the new Reprobates Hour episodes I've been promising. They are coming, I swear. I've just been buried and sick and haven't been able to finish them off yet. But they're coming soon, really. The final promo for Predestination hit the feed last weekend. Please distribute it widely. This one features the lovely Aaron Balabanian as Allie, being rather uh, cryptic and threatening and creepy. It's, uh, quite, it's quite a lot of fun. And uh, hang on tight. We're on the final run of this roller coaster, and it's a hell of a ride from here to the end. Remember that you can leave questions, comments, criticisms, attaboys, and death threats at dan at jdsawyer.net or on the blog at antithesis.jdsawyer.net. You can call and leave voicemail, and please do, at area code 206-350-5739. And remember to spread the word. If you like what you're hearing, and if you don't, why are you still listening? Please tell your friends, post a link, give away MP3s and pelt your enemies with CD copies of the first few episodes to get people hooked. Also, leave iTunes reviews. We're finally getting more iTunes reviews. That's great. Let's get it to critical mass so we can get into the top 100. Also, drop by our Zazzle store and get a t-shirt that says, Phalanx, the bar for people who want privacy. Really? They're not too expensive, and uh, they're a lot of fun. I always get people asking about, what the hell does that mean? Which is the point of a t-shirt that promotes a podcast. So anyway, I'll have the next episode for you early next week. Thank you for sticking with me as I work out all the kinks on my first book so that the next books can be even better and released more regularly. And until then, I leave you with The Nagging Questions. Will Percy survive the wrath of Volish? What is Bill's next move, and why does he think that Doug is as good as dead? 
Will Doug ultimately decide he can trust Joss? And perhaps most importantly, what will Joss do about Cassie's betrayal? Find out next week. And until then, remember, it isn't whether you win or lose. It's how you rig the game.